Turn in your Bibles, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 18 through 25, be focusing particularly on verse uh, 23. Hear what follows for what it is in its entirety, the Word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Three points uh, this morning. First of all, God with us, Emmanuel. Secondly, God for us. And thirdly, God in us. We sang uh, one of my favorite uh, Christmas hymns just now, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And one of the lyrics is, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. But it's well known, uh, words of Wesley, but why are they important? And what does it mean for you and for me uh, this Christmas morning, the incarnate deity? Well, uh, as you may know or you may not, uh, this is the highest hurdle and the biggest stumbling block in Christianity for the Jewish people, uh, for Muslims, for Jehovah's Witnesses. They all stumble right here. It's not the idea of a substitutionary atonement that is the biggest stumbling block, nor is it the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, nor even his miracles, or even as is recorded here, the virgin birth, which is the greatest stumbling block to all these peoples and others. Rather, it is this, the incarnation, that in this baby born of Mary in Bethlehem is God with us. Hail the incarnate deity. This is the supreme mystery where the profoundest and most most unfathomable depths of Christian revelation reside. But it is necessary and it is important. And it's necessary and important because everything else in the New Testament depends on this. The identity of the child about whom we read in verse 23 is God with us, that in this child, in this baby born of Mary, is the one true and living God. To uh, verify this, or if you will validate it, look with me at John chapter 1, where John also uh, talks about Jesus. John chapter 1, where the identity of this child is spoken of in more extensive uh, terms. John chapter 1, you're familiar with it, I'm sure. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) 
in the beginning um, was the Word, all right? The Word, of course, is Jesus. But in the beginning with the word, was the Word, we see his eternality, that he is everlasting, that he has no beginning, uh, that he was, there was not a time when he was not, when he was created. His eternality in the beginning was the Word, corresponding to the opening pages of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. And the Word uh, was with God. We see a personality there of this Word. Uh, He was God, we see uh, in verse 1. That is, He is God. We see His deity. In verse 4, we see the Word, or Jesus creating, all right? Um, All things were made through him. Without him, not anything was made that was made, all right? And then uh, in verse 4, we see him animating. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. We see the word revealing there as well. Skip down with me, though, to verse 14, which is probably what most closely corresponds to what we find in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23. And the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt, or the word there literally translated is tabernacled among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now, to a Jewish audience, that would have been immensely significant. But since only a few of us here are Jewish, and even at that, uh, not steeped in the Old Testament scriptures or the traditions of Israel, its significance needs to be uh, underscored and highlighted here. God came to dwell with his people, Israel, in the form of the tabernacle before there was a temple. All right? And so... What we can glean here is that the Word became flesh, and just as God came and dwelt amongst his people in the tabernacle prior to the temple, all right, so Jesus has come to dwell or to tabernacle amongst his people. And highlighting the fact that this Word become flesh is indeed God, read on in verse 14, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And as the glory cloud of God's presence dwelt in the tabernacle and later in the Holy of Holies in the temple, so also we understand that as, Jesus, uh, as John tells us that the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, we have seen his glory as Israel would have seen the glory, the Shekinah, Shekinah glory of God in the tabernacle <clears throat> dwelling amongst his people. And then verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. That Jesus makes the Father known, all right? So the baby born uh, in Matthew chapter 1 is God made man. He did not cease to be what he was eternally, eternal God, divine, But he became what he was not, human flesh, taking on a human flesh, and you became a human being in one person, two natures, divine and human together. The baby born is indeed God-made man. So veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Why is this significant? Because whenever we examine the cradle of Jesus in Bethlehem, we need to see the cradle in the shadow of the cross. James Denny, a theologian, put it this way. He said, 
The New Testament knows nothing of an incarnation which can be defined apart from its relation to atonement. Not Bethlehem, but Calvary is the focus of revelation, and any construction of Christianity which ignores or denies this distorts Christianity by putting it out of focus. And of course, people around the world today can celebrate Christmas without any relationship to the cross of Jesus at Jerusalem. They're very pleased to go to a nativity scene, very pleased to talk about a baby, very uh, pleased to talk about a baby ooing and cooing and isn't that cute and celebrate Christmas without any recognition of uh, exactly why it is that he has come. And that is to substitute himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. That is eschewed. That is ignored. That is dismissed. But... As we celebrate Christmas, we must see the cradle in the shadow of the cross. And now then, do you understand the words of Wesley's hymn, Veiled in flesh, the, God of sea, uh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God made flesh, God with us. Look at, if you will, at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, as Paul interprets this incarnation for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it's a verse many, if not most of you are familiar with. Second <clears throat> Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped onto, but humbled himself and took on human flesh and became obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. He who was rich became poor, so that we who were poor and lowly and dead in trespasses and sins might become rich by being adopted into the family of God through looking to and trusting in his death and resurrection. You see, the incarnation, for all the stumbling block that it presents to Jews, Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, and others, is not just a marvel of nature, but it's a wonder of grace. It's a wonder of grace. The love of God is seen in the cradle in Bethlehem. Love to the uttermost for unlovely human beings. He who was rich became poor, so that we who were poor might become rich. God with us. Now, turn back to Matthew chapter 1, if you will. A little further elaboration here. Much is made of the fact, and of course it's stated by uh, Matthew here in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then if you're looking in your Bible, it's most likely a pull quote, and the footnote reference there is to Isaiah chapter 7. And of course, Matthew is a Jew who's writing to Jews, all right, to 
convince them that the Jesus about whom he writes this good news, the good news of Jesus Christ according to Matthew, he writes to them to convince them that this Jesus is the promised and prophesied Messiah of Israel, all right? That this child born is indeed God come in human flesh as the Messiah, as the promised and prophesied king who would be the savior and the redeemer of his people, saving them not from political oppression or from Roman oversight, but saving them from their sins, all right? Now, I want to acknowledge that Matthew points that out, that this is a fulfillment of what is written by Isaiah. And much could be said about that. We could look at Isaiah chapter 7. There's controversy over whether or not uh, the word there is virgin or whether it's young maiden, and I'm not going to get into that at all. It's besides the point. But rather, I'd like to emphasize something that is addressed here Uh, in uh, verse 23, they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us, because what we see here is the fulfillment of a much larger and longer consistent strain of prophecy in the Bible that goes all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Think, if you will, I won't have you refer to the passages because as good Bible students, I trust you know the passages that I'll refer to. If you go back to Genesis, before the fall into sin in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, the ideal world, the world into which sin had not yet come, was a world in which God dwelled with man on the earth. God created Adam and Eve in his own image and likeness, and he walked with them in the cool of the garden, and he, he, he dwelt with them on the earth. Sin interrupted that relationship. Sin enters into the world, broke the relationship between God and humanity, broke the relationship between Adam and Eve, broke the relationship between Adam and Eve and creation. As we sung, thorns and thistles now infest the ground as a result of sin entering into the world. But God's original design, God's original intention, and God's original purpose will not be thwarted. And we see that excuse me, throughout the entirety of the Bible, this, this theme continues. The desire to God dwell with man on the earth. We see it in the aforementioned tabernacle. The tabernacle was the instruction of God to build a tabernacle where he could come and tabernacle or dwell amidst his people. And if you look at the passages in the Old Testament, the camp of Israel was camped in a square, the tribes situated around the four sides of the tabernacle so that God could dwell amongst them. And, of course, later on, that scene in the temple, where the temple is built and the Shekinah glory of God's presence comes and dwells in the temple, once again, in the midst of his people. The temple in Jerusalem was the crown jewel of Israel. Uh, It was the center of their life, of their worship, to be sure, all right? Uh, Then uh, Jesus comes. Jesus comes, and he is God with us. He tabernacles amongst his people in anticipation of what will be, and I will have you look at this. Look at Revelation chapter 22. I'm sorry, 21. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Listen, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
What we see in Matthew chapter 123 is not just a fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah said, all right, that the virgin will have a child, but we see a fulfillment of what uh, what was God's original intention, purpose, and design from Genesis on through to the tabernacle, through to the temple, through with jo- God coming in the person of Jesus to dwell with us, to dwell with, to dwell amongst us in anticipation of what will be glory. Is that when in the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells, no more self, uh, sin and thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. Why? so that he may once again dwell with man on the earth. As that prophecy, as that thread is fulfilled perfectly in the new heavens and the new earth. One other thing which always needs to be mentioned when we look at Revelation 21, look at verse, uh, uh, verse 2 here. I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. All right? Revelation tells us that In glory, heaven will come down to earth. It won't be that we will go up to heaven. And that is the hope of Christians, is that God will come to dwell on the earth with man. And then the centrality of the covenant, right? Uh, They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the central promise of the covenant from Genesis to Revelation. I will be your God, you will be my people, all right? So, an interesting uh, anticipatory fulfillment here in Matthew chapter 1 is not just the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, but the fulfillment of the design, intention, and purpose of God from Genesis, that he would dwell on the earth with his people. It's not just a marvel of nature, but a wonder of grace and an indication of the love of God for unlovely human beings, God with us. But... Turn back to Matthew chapter 1, and you see not only is God with us, but God is for us. And uh, in Matthew uh, 121, she, that is Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. God not only comes to dwell with us, but in order to dwell with us, he must deal with the problem of human sin. And Jesus comes not only to be Emmanuel, God with us, but to be God for us. He is the one in whom and through whom God will deal with that which separates us from God, and that is your sin and my sin. Now, for those of us that are Christians, particularly at Christmas, we sing these things, we revel in them, we delight in them, we rejoice in them, as is perfectly appropriate. But we must never get to the point where these... these things become taken for granted. And we do not recognize what it was to have God come and be for us. And why is that? Because of the horrifying reality of sin. Sin not only separates us from God, but it elicits forth his anger and his wrath. God naturally, if you will, is not for us. Truth be known, God is against us, all right? God is against us. Each and every sin, each and every sin you commit, each and every sin that I commit, is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God, and it cries out for judgment. God, as a just God, must punish sin. 
And God evokes and elicits forth his wrath. Look with me, if you will, just at a quick verse. Look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 36. John chapter 3, verse 36. John chapter 3 is the chapter in which we hear Jesus teach, you must be born again. But in verse 36, we read this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, by nature, and that is by fallen nature, by our sinful nature, by our sins as offenses against a thrice holy God, God's wrath remains upon us. And it remains the biggest problem that humanity has. I talk to many people and they say, well, I don't have a problem with God. You have to remind them, God has a problem with you. God has a problem with you. Your sin is offensive to him. Your sin must be punished. Your sin means that you are under God's wrath. And when uh, Matthew in verse 21 says that this child, Emmanuel, uh, uh, shall be given the name Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. All right? It, it tells us, uh, verse 23 tells us who this baby is, Emmanuel, he is God with us. But verse 21 tells us what he came to do, that he came to save his people from their sins. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon on this text, Put it in poetic form with these words. Once twas the seat of dreadful wrath and shot devouring flame. Our God appeared consuming fire, and vengeance was his name. Rich were the drops of Jesus' blood, which earned his frowning face, which sprinkled o'er the burning throne and turned the wrath to grace. God for us. <clears throat> That in Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, our Emmanuel, God turns his wrath to grace. He uses that famous word of Maddox, Santana, propitiation. He turns aside God's wrath from us, and his grace comes to us instead. As Jesus grows to the cross of Calvary, he takes the sins of his people upon himself, And God makes him who knew no sin, who was perfectly sinless, perfectly obedient. God makes him who knew no sin to be sin. And in Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, God executes his wrath on his own son. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The double transfer, if you will. The sins of his people given to Jesus, who saves them from their sins, and his righteousness is given to them instead. I would just encourage, indeed, as your pastor, I would insist that you, this Christmas season, not take this truth for granted, that the multitudes of people in our families, many, in our neighbors, many, in our relations, in our work colleagues, that they are under the wrath of God and in need of turning from sin and trusting in Jesus, who came to save people from their sins. This is a marvelous message and a marvelous gift of salvation that we have. Look at Romans chapter 8. The importance of this is highlighted by the Apostle Paul. 
in verse 31 when he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? To have God for us. To have one's sins removed. To have one's sins paid for. To have God's wrath turned away and to have God's grace and the smile of his countenance upon us. Who can be against us, Paul says. And listen to what he says as he goes on. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who? It's a rhetorical question. It expects a negative answer. Nobody can bring a charge against you. Surely your sinfulness remains. Surely your consciousness, your awareness of your sin perhaps increases as you go on in the Christian life. And you, uh, as you go on in the Christian life, you see that God is holier than ever you thought he was. And you are more sinful than ever you were. But who can bring a charge against you? Because the cross becomes larger and larger to cover that increasing gap. Nobody can bring a charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What a precious promise. That whenever your sin, your conscience burdens you, whenever you become increasingly aware of your falling short of God's glory, Whenever you may be tempted by the devil as he sits on your shoulder and whispers in your ear, perhaps. God would want nothing to do with the likes of you. Who do you think you are that you can presume upon God's goodness and God's grace? You're a filthy, rotten sinner. He would want nothing to do with the likes of you. These words become precious. And God for us. That promise becomes indeed precious. Jesus is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Look not in at your sin, look up. I forget which Puritan it was who said, your righteousness is in heaven. Look up, and look up to the right hand of the Father where Jesus, who came to save his people from their sins, who came to save you, who is for you, is before the throne, interceding. No, he is mine. No, she is mine. No, that one too is mine. I purchased them with my blood. They're dressed in my righteousness. He's for us. For us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Sword? I received an email this morning from Hero Hakkabord in Ukraine. And you're aware, of course, of the events that are going on in that country. And think of the Christians. Think of the Christians that we prayed for in our congregational prayer today around the world who suffer persecution for the cause of Christ. We know very little about that. But listen to what Paul says. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Can any of that separate one from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? No, he is for us. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And notice the reference here to what Paul elsewhere in Ephesians refers to as the powers and principalities, the spiritual, the war, that spiritual cosmic conflict which takes place in the heavenly realm. Will they be able to separate you from the love of God? No, nothing. Not angels, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, anything else in all creation, nothing will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Emmanuel is for us. There's nothing to fear. And that promise, which we most often, rightly, associate with evangelism and missions, Matthew chapter 28, you'll remember the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. For those of us that are naturally cowards when it comes to talking others about a Savior and people's needs to be saved from their sins. For those of us that perhaps struggle for how to go about that or wondering how to talk to others about this Savior. Jesus' presence is with you. God is for you and God is with you. I am with you always. One's encouragement does not come from being the smartest Bible student. One's encouragement in evangelism does not come from having attended seminars or gone to seminary. One's encouragement in evangelism doesn't come from knowing all the answers to all the questions and objections that people may raise. One's encouragement in evangelism comes from the fact that Jesus himself is with you. Think of that. God with us, God for us, unto the end of the age, I will be with you always. And then, of course, God with us, God for us, and God in us. Perhaps the most astonishing, at least to me, promise of our Jesus, our Emmanuel, is that God is not only with us in the sense of tabernacling amongst us, dwelling amongst us as Jesus Christ and anticipating what we shall have in glory, and not only that Jesus, our Emmanuel, is also for us and saving us from our sins, but that Jesus actually comes to take up residence in his people. Look with me, if you will, at John chapter 17. I can't remember if I mentioned this here recently or somewhere else. I've been traveling too much, but even if I did, repetition is the teacher's friend. Look at John 17, verse 23. John 17, verse 23. Now you know the context here. The broad context, beginning in chapter 14 through chapter 17, is the farewell discourses of Jesus. Takes place at the Last Supper, right? Or I should say the First Supper and the Last Passover, all right? And uh, Jesus is giving this teaching to his disciples on that occasion. We come to John chapter 17, and we see that Jesus, the high priest, is interceding 
on behalf of his people uh, with his father. So we have Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. So that's the context, all right? Jesus is talking or praying, if you will, to his father. And in verse 23, we read this. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Jesus says, I am in them, and you, Father, are in me. Elsewhere, in this farewell discourse, Jesus says, we will come and make our home with them, in us. The farewell discourse begins by Jesus saying to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. You'll remember that they were... uh, fearful at the prospect or, or uh, anxious at the prospect of his going away, right? And he says, do not fear, right? And he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And here Jesus says, I in them. And that's not even the money part, all right? Check this out. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now, Just think about that for a few thousand years, all right? Will all eternity be long enough to exhaust the vast blessing of what Jesus here says? The perfect love that God the Father has for God the Son is the very same love that Jesus has for you as his son or daughter or brother or sister, I should say. Read it again. Look. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And if it wasn't enough, right? I mean, we're so sin-dulled. Our, uh, the noetic effects of sin dull our brains. It's like we need to get this through our skulls, right? It's repeated in verse 26. Look at verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. It's not only God with us. It's not only in Jesus, God is for us. But Jesus is in us. God in us. And in us, in the perfection of heavenly love. The Father loves the Son. And with that same love, the Son loves His people. So that truly, You are his brothers. You are his sisters. Which is why the author of Hebrews can say, he is not ashamed to call them his brothers. I don't know about you, but every time I think of this, that just can't be true. Better go back to the Greek. Maybe it says something different in the Greek. I don't know. Better go to the systematic theology books. Maybe study something. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I got something wrong. Just can't be true. It's too good to be true. But it's true. It's true. That's the truth of the love of God in Jesus Christ for you if you're a Christian. God with us. God for us. The love of God in us. John Wesley lay dying in 1791 
And as was the practice of many people, even down to our day, surrounded by loved ones who were reading, reciting to him the promises of God as his death was imminent and they knew that he would pass into glory. And as they were reading the promises of God to him, John Wesley sat up straight in his bed. And he said, oh, this is true. But best of all, God is with us. And he laid down and died. This is the glory of Christmas. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us, God for us, God in us. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we, we marvel. And yes, we believe, but we ask that you would help our unbelief, that you would overcome our doubts, that you would overcome our fears, that you would overcome our anxieties, and that you would help us to rest perfectly, completely, totally in Jesus, our Emmanuel. Help us to rehearse, to recite, and to remind ourselves of the great truths of this Christmas season as seen in the light of your word. For we ask it in the name of and for the sake of Jesus, your Son, our Savior. Amen and amen.